Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Uh, so great to worship with all of you this morning. Let's continue our worship as we turn in, uh, to God's Word, and specifically the first book, and the first chapter of the first book is Genesis chapter 1. Please turn there with me now. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, 9 through 13 here. This is God's Word. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with the seed in them. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this tremendous privilege of coming together and singing your praises, opening up your divinely inspired word and being instructed and changed through it. That's what we pray. We pray that you would change our hearts through this text. We pray that you would be glorified in this time together and that your name would be exalted. You are truly worthy of our praise and adoration this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Let's just dive right in here this morning. We have so much to get to this morning. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you'll know we started this new year with a consideration of the beginning. Not only the beginning of the Bible, the first book, but also the very first verse of the first chapter, which describes for us the beginning of everything, the beginning of the universe itself, the beginning of everything that has ever had a beginning, which is everything except God who had no beginning, who has no end. We know this to be true as right from the start of our time in Genesis, we pled with the Lord, we begged the Lord as Moses did on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33 for us to show us his ways. We said, Lord, let us know your ways that we might know you. We spent three weeks looking and marveling at just some of the ways or some of the perfection or perfect attributes of Elohim, God Almighty, including his eternality as he began his miraculous work of creation. We read, in the beginning, God, the only one who was there at this point, created the heavens and the earth. And just like that, the whole of atheistic philosophy and theory went right out the window. Uh, we then briefly mentioned some of the other theories of man, both outside of and inside of the church, the evolutionary theories, both atheistic and theistic, as well as open theism, the idea that God created the earth, then stepped back and said, oh, I wonder how this is going to turn out. We didn't spend much time, but we touched on the old earth theories, the framework and day-age theories, the gap theories, and more, ultimately deeming them to be nothing more than human speculation, darkened counsel, words without knowledge from folks who, again, 
weren't present when the earth was created. Yet, as was the case with Job's friends, seemed to have no qualms about misrepresenting God Almighty or, more commonly today, doing violence to his inspired text in order to make their theories work. All while the clear, plain, basic, common-sense meaning of the Scriptures shouts at them from the rooftops, he didn't need billions of years. The, the same Elohim, Yahweh himself, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, created all time, all space and matter, the entire world and the universe that rests within in an instant by the very word of his power. God the Father initiated and governed creation, which was enacted through God the Son, the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was and is God, and God the Holy Spirit, who activated and again put into motion this majestic creation that was brought forth by divine declaration as he hovered over the waters, as he hovered over the darkness of the deep until that moment when Each person of the Trinity, acting in concert with the other two persons, illuminated it all by a simple command, let there be light. And there was light, right? And then last week, we heard as Brad took us through another divine command and the subsequent obedience of the elemental components of the heavens and the earth as the expanse was brought forth by this same powerful word, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Moses said, and it was so. There was morning, there was evening, a second day, and now here we are. We're on the third day. The third consecutive 24-hour normal solar day, which we've all known a day to be since the moment we've been toddling around on this planet as God summoning the foundations of the earth to rise from this vast watery globe says let dry land appear and it was so so clear so forthright so simple and easy to understand and yet so incomprehensible so profound so utterly mind-blowing that when it's all said and done the one who truly takes this command at face value is only left to stand in awe and Respond in worship of the Lord Almighty at the infinite, omnipotent, divine wisdom on display as creation unfolds on the pages of his divinely inspired text. And we have the privilege of doing that this morning together, congregationally. So let's do that now. Let's, let's stand in awe together as we hear of how this all went down. Uh, look at verse 9, first point in your outline here. Then God said... Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. The waters below the heavens, below the expanse, as we heard last week, is simply referring to the waters that now uh, made up this earth, this now shaped earth. In verse 2 we read that, The earth was formless and void. It was without shape and uninhabited. I believe that shaping happened on the first day as the uh, the elements of the earth were molded into a spherical form, which is what allowed for the separation of uh, day and night. I know not everyone believes that, and that's okay. That's not a big deal. Uh, A lot of faithful men and women believe the initial shaping took place right here on day three. 
And I think for good reason. I think they have a good argument here as these waters that made up the earth in whatever form at this point were then gathered together into one place as land appeared. Now, what does this mean exactly? Does it mean that when land appeared at the very command of its maker that it came from every side surrounding these waters making one gigantic ocean or lake? I mean, this was the pre-flood creation here. The earth didn't necessarily look like what we know it to look like today with its separated continents and whatnot. Maybe all the continents were joined together and there was just one big old fat ocean right in the middle of it. Is that what this means? Maybe so. But I don't think that's what it's saying here. Again, the waters here is in the plural. I believe this is a clear reference to multiple bodies of water. In fact, we'll see it again in verse 10. He called the gathering of the waters, plural, seas, plural. Multiple bodies of water, including oceans, lakes, rivers that we know were in pre-fall creation. We know from Genesis chapter 2 that there would already be four established rivers as autumn as Adam walked around in the garden, the Pishon, Gihon, Tigris, and the river Euphrates. So in its plain, literal reading, which we've already determined is going to be the method of interpretation here, as we would do with any other book of the Bible, from the plain, literal reading, it seems clear that this land either just showed up out of nothing or appeared from beneath this watery globe, rising up, creating, as we'll read later, barriers. Multiple, plural barriers for the multiple, plural waters or seas. And if this isn't a mercy from God, I don't know what is. The fact that we're not living on some water world right now is praiseworthy in itself, right? Can you imagine living on this globe with no land? I mean, I know that scientist that we quoted a few weeks ago was really feeling that whole human legs from fish fins thing. That fish theory he had going on. And many scientists even today are quick to say that early human embryos in the womb have slits in their necks that look like gills. But here in Genesis 1-9, Moses says, no, 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 that won't be necessary. Before humans were even a part of the earth, in fact, about, oh, 72 hours earlier, God had already provided us with solid ground to rest our feet upon, to rest our feet upon. Fish legs. Come on. Why do they always want to turn us into animals? Well, because God gave man dominion over animals. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. You know what I love most about this text, though? In it, we see yet another example of Yahweh's declaration and creation's immediate subjugation or submissive on massive astronomical levels. We've we've seen it already. The light, the expanse, the instantaneous creation of the very ends of space. Now on day three, he's back to work on the earth, land being summoned, oceans, huge bodies of water being formed. Think of the sheer size of this planet that we're on right now, the vastness of this huge world and its final form is being molded and shaped and structured right here in verse 10 like that instantaneously it's incredible next week we'll look at the sun the moon and the stars you think the earth is big 1.3 million of these things can fit in that fiery globe and guess how long it took him to create that the sun 
in an instant, by the word of his power, that sun that burns, that we all depend on day in, day out, it's been burning the whole time, like that, in an instant. That's right. Yahweh says jump in verse 9, and the earth says how high in verse 10. And just like that, the colossal seas are contained, barricaded at his word. You know, I was reading a lot of different resources during my preparation. I had two full weeks to prepare for this. You wouldn't believe some of the deities and some of the gods that entire people groups have created and believed in over the, throughout the history of the world and sought to appease throughout the history of the world. I'm telling you. The imagination of the wicked minds of totally depraved men and women, they're quite impressive. The creativity and cleverness manufactured within the hearts of a humanity desperately fleeing the thought of having to acknowledge and bend the knee to the one true God are impressive. I'd even say that the lengths that people have gone to to explain away the actual creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth throughout the history of this world are incredible. So don't be discouraged about the rampant idolatry out there today. Okay? There's nothing new under the sun here. People have been running away from giving credit where credit is due for millennia. Literally. The Aztecs believed in Atlahua, the god of water, archers, and fishermen. They believed in a sea goddess named Chalchitlique. She controlled all waters, lakes, rivers, seas, streams, and rainstorms. Now, according to myth, she once ate the sun and the moon. That doesn't sound like a cheap date to me. <laughs> she was associated with the many facets of water as well as being credited with being involved with the death of those who died in drowning accidents. That was her. And in addition to water-related accidents, she took care of the outright murder as well. Quote, Chalchitlique presided over both uh, over birth rituals, Judea- judiciary uh, purification, bathing of sacrificial vis- victims, and the recycling of ritual waste. The recycling of ritual waste. You know what that means. Human sacrifices. Because, of course, she did, right? We're all aware of Greek mythology. Eurabia, goddess of the mastery of the seas, Galen, the goddess of calm seas, Glaucus, the fisherman sea god, Oceanus, titan god of the earth encircling river, Poseidon, Olympian god of the sea, and king of the sea gods. The Roman equivalent is Neptune. We've all heard that name, of course. In addition to being the king of the sea gods, Poseidon is also the god of floods, droughts, earthquakes, and horses. Horses? That's kind of random. I wonder if they meant seahorses. How'd you like to be the god of the seahorses? Calvary, mount up! Hold on, I'm stuck to the seaweed here. He's the god of the seahorse. It's ridiculous. You should laugh. But that's the gods that people have worshipped bowed down to, sacrificed to, sacrificed their babies and children to. Oh yeah, nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. It goes way back, before Greek times even. In fact, Alan Ross tells us of the god Baal in Canaan. How Baal could produce fertility, and at the end of the year, Baal died. An idea that explained why crops died. He was 
said to be captured by a god named Death and carried away to the abyss, the domain of Prince C. But in the spring, the goddess Anat, Baal's consort, rescued him in bloody battle, defeating Prince C in the process. The reappearance of Baal thus ensured that the crops would grow in the new year and accounted for the change of the seasons in the spring. Ross said most, most of the ancient religion had such rituals designed to induce the gods to produce crops and fruit and life as well. Nothing new under the sun. Today, big bangs, mutating cells, fish legs. We've all come from monkeys. And babies having no more worth than an animal are being sacrificed on the altar of women's health. Can you imagine worshiping a God so capricious as Baal? Could you imagine living like that? A God not only fully dependent upon your sacrifices to appease him or govern his mood for the day, but who gets kidnapped by death every year only to have to await rescue from his lady friend to make crops grow again? I mean, the anxiety that must have resided within the hearts of those who adhered to some of these ridiculous theories and myths had to be off the charts. What an excruciatingly tormented life for these people who had to live under the leadership of wicked men who governed their entire civilizations resting upon such absurdities. But guess what? It's no different today. It's no different today. Sure, these theorists, they may talk a big talk. They may talk a big game. But deep down, they're terrified of the truth. They're terrified of the thought of their own inevitable imminent death. And if they're not afraid of it, then they're fools. Plain and simple. Is that you this morning? Are you a fool sitting here this morning? Are you so foolish that you'd go to such great lengths to explain away your creator? The one who gave you your life and sustains your life as you sit there hearing my voice this morning? Are you so foolish? Oh, may it not be. May it not be. You want to hear some truth this morning? You want to hear how things really went down? And continue to go down with the winds and the waves and the seas and the earth even to this day and will go down until the very end? All in the same way. Through the power of his word. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God commands and the creation complies. God declares and the creation does. God orders, the creation obeys. God says and the creation submits instantly. There is no sea prince, sea goddess, or sea god. Those are all figments of the imaginations, the warped imaginations of the men with desperately sick hearts and and men and women with totally depraved hearts who hate their God. There is only one true, living, eternal God who made the sea and commands the sea, set barriers for the sea and says, no farther shall you come. This verse 9 here, this is the moment we've referenced in Job these past few weeks when he said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Job? 
Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Those are angels. You know, some people have asked, when were angels created? Well, based on that text, it seems clear to me that it was either day one or day three, but definitely no later. Watch as Genesis 1, 9 and 10 continue to unfold here. Or who, closed, who enclosed the sea with its doors, Job? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and a dense gloom its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt on, and doors. And I said, thus far shall you come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Who enclosed those doors, Job? Tell me. Did you do it? Was it you, Eliphaz? No. The writer of Psalm 104 tells us who it was. Yahweh founded the earth upon its place so that it will not shake forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away in alarm. The mountains went up, the valleys went down to the place which you founded for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. Such is the magnificent power of Yahweh. So maybe, like Job, we ought to just shut our mouths bend our knees and bask in the awesomeness of his glorious might for a bit. Put away our little childish theories of idle tales of flood gods and fishermen gods. Nonsense. That's Genesis 1, 9, and 10. As the foundations were laid, the seas were stopped right where he told them to stop. Waves which did nothing do nothing and will do nothing apart from his sovereign command. As Sproul said, there truly are no maverick molecules. God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And that's a truth that we can walk out of here this morning, standing firmly upon this morning, right? We can stand firmly upon that. All other ground is sinking sand, right? It's all sinking sand. And the Lord's work, it's not yet completed for this day here, as if, as if the summoning of the dry land and gathering of the vast seas wasn't enough to accomplish in 24 hours. Point 2, verse 11 says, Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. Okay, here we go. Plant life. The cultivation and propagation of vegetation. And just like that, the land emerging, uh, uh, providing bar barriers for the quintillions of gallons of waters on earth, this vegetation was brought forth instantly and fully mature on this, on this land. Now, I know that this, uh, this may ruffle the feathers of some in certain circles here, this thought of God creating plant life, bushes and trees and vines and leaves fully mature. 
but I don't see why. Why does he ruffle feathers? He'll do the same thing with humans in a couple of days. You didn't think Adam grew up from a baby, did you? That he was created as an infant? No, no, no. He was a fully grown man. A walking, talking, animal naming, garden maintaining man. Our great, great, however many great grandpa was formed from the dust of the Nile dry land, fully mature. Adam was no baby. He didn't have any neck gills. No womb. No mommy. He certainly wasn't a cell that evolved and mutated over billions of years. No, the real question is, did he have a belly button? <laughs> Enos, do you know? We don't know. Why? Because it's not in the text. It doesn't say it. So why speculate? But this text in verse 11 Every word of this text is important. Every word is significant. Look again at verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with their seed in them. And it was so. Vegetation sprouting, plants yielding, fruit trees bearing. Okay? What sprouted up on this now fertile earth, this soil were full-grown plants and herbs, which included fully-grown seeds, which would eventually bring forth other sprouting plants, starting from, seedling, starting from seedlings and growing into maturity. But the first plants, fully grown. Okay, they were right there, mature, with fully matured seeds hanging from them, ready to be dispersed and planted into the ground by whatever means, by the Wind blowing by the hooves of animals, by birds eating them and, you know, at their leisure, dispensing them, uh, by whatever means. But here in verses 11 and 12, fully grown and sprouted in an instant plants. Okay, same with trees. Fully grown, fully mature trees, which bore fully mature fruit, which had Seed in that fruit, ready to make more trees, which would grow and cover the earth. But for now, fully grown trees, right from the get-go, just popping up. I'm thinking full forests, full jungles with their canopies and vines, full mature, life-giving, oxygen, carbon dioxide exchanging, shade-providing trees appearing in an instant, ready to replicate and reproduce into that which we see even to this day. Now again, These were pre-flood trees and plants. I'm not really sure exactly what they look like, nor am I sure if the trees had rings to guesstimate their approximate lifespan. That's what someone said. Uh, Were these trees sprouted with the rings in them to fool us, the scientific community? To which I would say, how in the world would I know? I don't know. But why does the mind automatically go to... Would God try to deceive us? Why is God trying to deceive us? Why can't we just say, man, that is awesome. The same God who said, let there be light and an expanse and land and the seas, the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the whole universe by his word, was also able to make fully mature trees and plants sprout up and cover the earth in an instant. That is awesome. Praise the Lord. Is that so difficult to just say, praise the Lord? 
Instead of, uh, I wonder if he's deceiving us with the ring. <laughs> Come on. I don't know. It just seems so hard for us to just trust him. Just take him at his word. Oh, but we're so quick to believe the philosophical tales flowing from the scientific wings of our communities. The brainiacs who say that we came from primordial ooze, which grew into fish who sprouted legs and that eventually allowed monkeys to stand upright. And here we all are. Our work is done. Now give us our 40 grand a year. Thank you very much. That we can buy. But God Almighty speaking his creation into existence uh, fully mature in six literal days? Meh, that's too far-fetched. We, we couldn't believe that. No. One well-known preacher said this. Think about how weak the church is in magnifying God's goodness in the realm of creation. Amen. Think of all our backpedaling and our stumbling and our bumbling to accommodate an evolutionary hypothesis, how pathetic we all are, because we want to be thought bright, because we want to be thought intellectual, because we are unprepared to take the simple truth of God's word, which begins, in the beginning, God, the creator, manifested his goodness in establishing all as is. We are not simply turbocharged monkeys, he says. You can believe that if you choose, but you will limp through life, end quote. Spurgeon said it this way. If it's really true that we've come from monkeys, then we should no longer pray our Father who are in heaven, but our Father who are up a tree. (laughs) It's absurd. And yet, it's the explanation of our day. Listen, not only is it clear that God created this first batch of vegetation mature and in an instant, but it's clear that he did so in a specific order from the throne. Evolution is chaos, but our God is not a God of chaos or confusion, but of order. There was divine order in these first days. He created the vegetation with order according to their kind. Their kind. Look at the distinctions he makes here in verse 11. Two main types of vegetation stand out here. Plants yielding seed, trees bearing fruit with seed. There's a distinction. One bears seed and one bears fruit that has seed in it. Then there's grass. Actually, this word for vegetation here is more commonly translated grass. Excuse me. So there, really there are three types mentioned Henry Morris elaborates. He says, three main orders of plant life are mentioned. Grasses, herbs, or plants, and trees. Whether this classification corresponds to modern taxonomic nomenclature or not is irrelevant. The latter is man-made and entirely arbitrary, whereas these biblical divisions are are obvious and natural. I like that kind of talk. It's irrelevant. I don't really care what they say. The three are intended to cover all types of plants. And these are the most obvious comprehensive categories. The term grass is intended to include all spreading ground-covering vegetation. Herbs includes all bushes and shrubs. Trees includes all large woody plants, including even even fruit-bearing trees. Each according to their own kind. Each organism was created to reproduce after its own kind. Okay, meaning 
Herbs make herbs. Trees make trees. Grass makes grass. This word for kind, uh, mean, M-I-N, is probably best understood as our word for genus or family or species. In other words, while there are variations within species, coconut trees and apple trees, big fish, little fish, long-tailed dogs and short-tailed dogs, hairy cats and hairless cats, giant forest hogs and teacup pigs, there are no pig dogs or fish cats or fishmen. There are no dogmen, no birdmen, no monkeyman, no plantmen. There are fish, dogs, birds, primates, plants, and pigs, and men. Now, some men can act like pigs, uh, either, but only in terms of personality or appetite, even. But we'll never become pigmen. doesn't matter how much bacon you eat. You'll never be more of a pig or less of a human than you are now. Why not? Because we're not the same kind. I don't know how else to say it. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something here. This, maybe I'm not too bright. Maybe you should get someone up here a little smarter. Seems like basic stuff here, though. Very common sense stuff. We don't breed dogs and cats, right? Horses and cows, birds and whales. You get some hodgepodge. Oh, they can mess around with cells in the lab somewhere in their little microscopes replicating and then destroying DNA structures to play God and create some Frankenstein. But they're not improving on the cellular structures here. Okay, they're distorting them. They're mutilating them through over-radiation, altering and ultimately destroying brilliantly designed genetic codes in the process, proving themselves, when it's all said and done, to be nothing more than cancer cells dressed up in little white lab coats. One commentator said this, never has a plant evolved into something higher. In fact, if you study mutations and change in genetics, it's always negative. It's always negative. It's always downward. Mutations, he says, are very rare. This is fortunate because they're virtually all harmful. They all decline. In most cases, mutations never even survive. That's why evolution has been called fact-free science. I love that. My brothers and sisters, hear these words today. Let them sink down into the very crevices of your brains and the depths of your hearts and your souls. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And guess what the earth did? Moses said, it was so. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with the seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And look again at the marvelous summary at the conclusion of day three. Verse 13 says, there was evening, there was morning, a third day. Hey, the earth is ready. Okay? It's ready for you, animals. It's ready for you, humans. Yeah, he's got some things to take care of tomorrow, the sun, the moon, the stars, the light, and the heavens above. But as far as the earth and its final pre-flood form, the, the land is there. 
The greens are there. The food is there. Tomorrow we'll get some sunshine. We'll get some moonlight going. We'll kick off that whole photosynthesis thing. And then he'll begin to fill the earth. For now, the spinning globe sits ready, waiting. And he did it all in three literal 24-hour days some 6,000 years ago, period. End of discussion as far as we're concerned. Why? Because that's what it says. Okay? That's what it says. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Join us next week when we hear about his miraculous work continue on the fourth day. But for now, don't get too excited now. What about, I got I see. For now, to close our time, I want to direct you back to your attention back to the end of verses 10 and 12. Notice the phrase there, which we touched on a couple weeks ago, but was noticeably absent from last week's text. And I thought Brad did a good job of explaining why it was missing. It's the phrase, and God saw that it was good. It was good. He, he, did, he said it twice on day three, only once on days one, four, and five. On day six, he says the animals were good. He sums up his entire completed work by saying all that he had made was very good before resting on the seventh. But again, nothing on day two. And yet, two times, two times here on day three, it was good. The dry land appearing at his command was good. That same earth bringing forth vegetation was good. Tove, good, pleasant, agreeable. It was good. According to who? Well, according to the standard of all that is Good. The all good, infinitely good, and unchangeably good God, the good God of the Bible, the good God of the heavens and the earth. My brothers and sisters, I want us to see this uh, as we continue in this creation account. We, we said, we said, show us your ways. Remember that? I remember that. It was New Year's Year's Day. Most of you were here. We were right here, and we prayed, Lord, let us know your ways. I remember it. We have the sermon. We can go back and play that if we want to play it. Lord, let us know your ways that we might know you. Well, don't miss it now. In this creative account, in this first chapter, he's answering that prayer. He's saying, okay, you want to know my ways? I am eternal from everlasting to everlasting. I am infinite, and I am perfect in every way. And all my perfections are without bounds. I am infinitely wise. I am infinitely powerful. I am omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. I never change. I never develop. I never diminish or grow in ability or knowledge. I am limitless, and I am good. I am good. He he has chosen to reveal this way to us, even here this morning, his goodness. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done for us in his goodness. I don't... He's given us life on this earth. He's given you life. This is universal application for everyone sitting in here. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. I don't care about your family heritage, your race, your gender, your height or shape. I don't, frankly, I don't care what you believe or you don't believe. 
If, if you're sitting there right now, it's only because he allowed you to sit there right now to hear of his amazing goodness in the first day of his creation. What an amazing grace this is. But I will ask, what will you do with what you've heard today? What will you do with it? The creator said his creation was good. And the creation was good because the creator is good. Then, as we're going to read, we came along, we messed it all up. But, but think about it for a second. Think about this now. Even now, even now in the world's post-curse condition, even now in our post-curse condition, in this post-flood condition where everything comes with a burden and a struggle, in his divine goodness, Yahweh still gives to us and to all of mankind good things to enjoy, right? He gives us his light to, to see and feel and be warmed by. He gives us cover and moisture with his clouds and trees, lest we be burnt by that raging sun. He gives us land to stand upon and vegetation, both to enjoy and consume. We have art and music and cultures and love and laughter, beautiful scenery, families, pets, companions, husbands, wives, intimacy, comfort, friendship. Think about your senses alone. Just the senses that he's allowed you to to have. One preacher said he could have made us all rocks if he wanted to. Emotionless, dumb, no sight having, no word speaking rocks. But he didn't. Why? Because he's good. Because he's good. He is altogether good. You walk outside right now. Take 15 steps that way on Florida. Be careful now. They drive like crazy over here. Look to the west. See those majestic mountains over there. That's the goodness of God letting you see that. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees type of good. What are you going to eat today? Will it have any green in it? Will it have any fruit in it? If not, you're not going to be around long anyway. But But if there is... You can thank God for his goodness, for his vegetation. It's his. He gave us these things, even us sinners. Even all, that, all those who still hate him today to enjoy these good things. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The precious rain which we get to feel upon our skin cools us down. Go outside and look at the green grass for a minute. Well, it's brownish right now, but it'll be green in a month. Right? Go to a flower shop. Consider the lilies. Thank him for his kindness and goodness in letting you not only see the vivid colors of his petals, but also to smell its sweet perfume and feel its silky texture. We're not animals, man. He, he created us with these senses, these excitable senses. He created us with a heightened intelligence and emotional awareness, a consciousness that we're alive with senses that can enjoy the beauties and common graces along with the rest of his creation. Think about the goodness of God and what he has allowed you to enjoy even on this corrupted and cursed earth. He is truly good, right? Charnock said it best. He said, pure and perfect goodness is only the royal prerogative of God. 
Goodness is a choice perfection of the divine nature. This is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness, good in himself, good in his essence, good in the highest degree, possessing whatsoever is comely, excellent, desirable, the highest good because the first good, end quote. My brothers and sisters, recognize and rest in the goodness of God. He is good. He is unchanging in his goodness. He is never more good or less good. He never improves or declines. He never gets better in his goodness because he is already and always perfectly good. Always. Believe it. Cling to it. He he is good in the good days. He is good in the bad days. Even in the darkest days of your life, he is good. When you get that diagnosis, the doctor says, you only have so long. Well, that's a bummer, doc. But I know this, God is good, even now. When you have that conflict at work, church, God is good. You have that argument with your wife. Well, I know this, God is good. My selfishness and sometimes idiocy doesn't change that fact. (laughs) When you turn on the news, you look at the News on your phone, you see the rapid decay of society as it spirals into gross deprivation and degeneracy before your very eyes. When you see the pain and the affliction and the abuse of the most vulnerable among us at the hands of your fellow man, even from the hands of those at the highest levels, my brothers and sisters, know this, even then, God is good. He is good. When you are persecuted, maligned, reviled, slandered, hated for Christ's sake, take comfort. Take joy even in the reality that God is good when you lose somebody closest to you, when you lose a loved one and you don't know where they are, you don't know if you'll ever see them again, you can rest in the truth that God is good. Always, always. God is truly good, no matter what we're experiencing, even when we don't fully grasp or the reasons or meanings of things, we can say with Habakkuk, Habakkuk, yet will I exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Why? Because Yahweh is good. A strong defense in the day of distress, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I want to ask you, are you one of those? Does he know you? you? Have you taken refuge in him? Is he not only the God of your creation, but the God of your salvation? You say, well, how do I know? Well, do you believe what he just told you about himself in his word? Do you believe everything that he says about himself in his word? Do you believe what he says about his son? Do you believe in the gospel of his son? That's how we know God's goodness, not just in creation, but also in salvation. We know because his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the embodiment and personification of the perfect goodness of God. He was altogether good. He was perfect, sinless, spotless, born of a virgin, born under the law, yet kept the law perfectly, never straying, never deviating from the right to the left of his father's will. Why? Because he was God in human flesh. Yeah, the greatest manifestation of God's goodness was shown through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for sinners. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, 
Send him to die. I scarce can take it in that on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died and take away my sin. Can you say that? As he, as he came to this earth that was created through him, as he lived a life of love and mercy, full of grace and goodness, yet was offered up as a sacrifice. A perfectly acceptable, sin-atoning, wrath-appeasing sacrifice for men and women who were separated from God because of their sin. In other words, all of us. And specifically, for all who would but turn from that sin, come to him by faith alone. All here today, even today, who believe in the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, who would but believe in Trust in the shed blood, that precious blood of the Son of God to fully cover and atone for our sin. I ask again, are you one of those? Is this you? If not, I would invite you to come to him this morning by grace through faith. I would invite you, as the psalmist said, to taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I invite you to take everlasting refuge in this good God through his Christ this morning to then praise him and truly worship him for the goodness manifested both in this world and in his word. May we never lose sight of this truth. The land was good. The plants were good. The creation was indeed good, a gift from the Lord. But we, may we never ever lose sight of the fact that every good gift comes from the Lord, for he himself is perfectly, infinitely, and eternally good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray now. We'll have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we just give you praise for your goodness. The that you have revealed to us both in your world and in your word. We thank you for today. We thank you for giving us the privilege of coming together as your body, as your people, as your creatures, and hearing how you spoke the very universe into existence and, and how you gave us good things on this earth, even though none of us deserve it at all. We deserve nothing, and you've given us everything because you've given us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for that day when we see you face to face and give you praise for who you are and worship your holy and good name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with us.